Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life, our last podcast for 2022. Today I catch up with our very own Kat Burgess, head of place here at Frost Collective. I'm thrilled to announce that today Kat has been named New South Wales Chair for 2023 for the Australian Graphic Design Association, otherwise known as AGDA. Tune in as we chat about her plans for AGDA, her journey from being a TV journalist to one of Australia's leading brand strategists and her role in designing the future of Sydney. Hey Kat, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks Vince. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. And we're together in studio in Sydney, in Alexandria, and it's so cool to, um, to get together and have a chat. We've been planning this for a while. And you've been off touring, doing lots of talks and uh, events uh, around the country, which has been super cool. And you just got back from the No BS uh, conference in Melbourne uh, last week. How was that? Oh, it was fantastic. I think post-COVID, any opportunity to get together with the creative community is just so enriching and like really starts to fire off incredible ideas in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll come back to that because that's really exciting. And we'll talk about, you'll talk about what you talked about uh, last week. And uh, I'm sure everybody will be really keen to hear that. But tell me about your life growing up in, in Australia, in, in Sydney, because you um, have an interesting uh, background, which we'll explore shortly. You grew up in one of the first houses designed by leading our Australian architect, Philip Cox. How was that? Well, it was remarkable because this house was very much influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright. Like my parents were very interested in Japanese architecture. And it was quite funny because my mum actually went to university in the 1950s and had a very interesting group of friends, people like Les Murray, and she was an artist uh, at that Mm. age and wanted to be an artist. Um, Very challenging for women in the 1950s to have that sort of vision. And one of her friends was friends with this young architect, Philip Cox, and said, oh, you should get him to design the house that they wanted to create. They'd bought this amazing block of land, um, in Pimble, which I kind of always <laughs> slightly embarrassed about, but it's beautiful because it fronts yeah. onto what was uh, native cedar rainforest. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to build a house in that incredible style uh, to look out over that rainforest. So one whole side of the house is glass and also it had a glass roof light. Um, and wow. so I think for me, I get really depressed if I am in dark places. Like yeah. I have to be surrounded by light. But I think uh, it created a very strong visual awareness from childhood of um, nature because we were always down playing in the creek at the end of our oh, block. Wow. Um, 
I had even convinced my childhood boyfriend that a dinosaur lived in the backyard. (laughs) (laughs) But we would do things like find turtles that had been released in this creek and take them and keep them in our basket in our bathtub and um and uh we would uh you know i was surrounded by the most beautiful things like there were marameka curtains uh that were you know uh, on on the uh, on these like large glazed walls uh there was you know um beautiful joinery the whole roof is actually tasmanian oak inside like they did a the the roof was uh they'd use wood on the roof rather than on the floor and and then the floor was beautiful tiling and so and it was a real kind of late sixties seventies house you know wow. and uh, yeah I think that from a very young age it made me very visually aware and very appreciative of the power of design on people's yeah. lives and you have obviously a very creative family I mean your your mum's a painter and still is right she's you say she's ninety yeah. Um, so I think that's remarkable. Um, and yeah, my mother is a big influence in my life. Um, and she is not only influential in the things that she's done, like in the 1980s, she was actually, um, appointed to go on cultural exchanges to China at a time when it was before Tiananmen Square. And so she traveled extensively in China in a time when, you know, it was really, you know, pretty much closed. Um, and she met all of these Japanese woodcut artists because she's a printmaker as well as a painter mm. and, you know, had this incredible experience of cultural exchange. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, I've always been surrounded by, you know, this amazing artistry and uh, appreciation for art in a very kind of um, abstract way. I mean, often when you say to people, my mother's an artist, they assume that they're kind of a Sunday painter. Mm. But her work is very abstract and very kind of deep and very much about uh, Australia and about that forest that our house looks out on. Mm. Like, that's her kind of subject. So, yeah, it's been very inspiring to have her in my life. Isn't that amazing? And when your dad, what does your dad do? So my dad had an amazing story. He uh, was born in the country in Tamworth and his dad died at a very young age. Uh, He ended up in Sydney later in his life and um, he was very right <laughs> hopefully I, I, I yeah I can see that. where that comes from um, but never had finished school so he was working in the rag trade when he met my mum and then he went back and studied uh, accountancy at university and then over the course of his life was very successful and ended up working in in banking so mm. they were very um, different people but my dad is also very creative um, mm. he is you know loves music um, he loves design so yeah I was I was very lucky to you know, be brought up by people who really do understand the power of creativity on people's lives. And I guess it's like, I've always known you, well, I've known you now for 19 years. And I remember when I first met you, when I first came from um, England on a, did an Agda tour of Australia, and I met uh, all the team at um, Emory Vince at the time um, in Sydney. And obviously, meeting you is just like, inc- inc- <laughs> I've never met anyone like you before, <laughs> uh, in a positive way. Um, incredible, incredible confidence that you have and um, passion and uh, energy. And we'll talk more about energy later, but that whole kind of energy that you've got um, was just something I hadn't experienced before. And, <laughs> and your seatbelt. Huh? Yeah, and no, I lear- <laughs> learned, learned to, 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 to obviously uh, love that and embrace that. And obviously in our, in our work that we do as Frost Collective, um, you know, you're an incredible leader in the team and uh, highly strategic and a person that people really want to hear from. You know, our clients really come to come to us and want to hear your recommendations on, you know, currently, obviously, on place strategies, et cetera. 
and branding, of course. But you didn't start off in um, in this area, did you? How did how, what how, how did you, what was what your child? Happened? Yeah, what happened? <laughs> well, it's interesting because, um, as I said, like I always grew up in an environment surrounded by ideas. You know, that was, and even from childhood, like I used to do public speaking and acting and debating and all of those things. Um, and so, um, like, I actually wanted to be an actor when I left school or I wanted to work in art journalism. Like, those were the things that I was passionate about. Um, and somehow it got decided because I was one of four children and it was kind of in the age where the parents would kind of decide what their kids would do. Oh, really? We're well beyond that now, aren't wow. we? There's no way I could tell my son what he should do in his life. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, they, and again, it was through family connections that they knew someone who'd set up the journalism school uh, that was at was then at Mitchell College, which was a very highly esteemed course. Mm. And so, yeah, I left Pimble and went off to Bathurst and studied television broadcast journalism. Um, and for me, I still did all the acting. Um, and so I still, like, I've always felt very comfortable on a stage. Like, I actually love that mm. experience yeah. um, of being on a stage and talking to people. I think what that... Nothing, f- nothing phases you, does it? Oh, yeah, a lot phases Oh, me. does it? <laughs> it maybe just doesn't look that way. <laughs> um, but... Uh, And then, yeah, studying journalism, I was so lucky. So that interest I had in acting meant that when you were meant to be out doing prac courses throughout the course of your degree, I'd been always in productions. And so I did Uh my internship, which you had to do to graduate, at the end. And I went to Channel 7 News and I was, you know, one of those bright-eyed, bushy-tailed interns. Um, In fact, my job was to monitor police radios to listen literally for fire engines kind of and so I, wow. I loved it I, I loved it so much I turned up for work on Christmas day um, back in the dark ages when <laughs> and uh, and yeah and they could see they could see I loved it so I was really lucky I got offered a role at Channel 7 and that's how I ended up working there for quite a few years and were you on TV in the end yeah yeah oh, I wow. was I was I started out a police radio monitor and then I yeah, I, I was a reporter. I wasn't a very good reporter, Vince. I just oh, I, why? I, I didn't like being on camera, actually. I liked the writing bit, but I, I don't know. I felt quite awkward, you know. Uh, I don't know. It was just something that I, I found quite challenging for, for all that training and everything. Maybe I should have gone into print journalism rather than TV. Mm. I probably should have figured that out before that was my <laughs> chosen path. So, so where did you go from there? Um, so... Uh, I then started working in PR and public affairs because that's what happens a lot with journalists Mm. um, is that you go over to the dark side and you switch from, you know, being the people who are writing the news to the people who are kind of trying to get things on the news. Um, But that was a really interesting time for me because I worked a lot in government. So I worked uh, in public affairs for Sydney Water initially and that was just a fluke. Like I was looking for a job. I'd been overseas. I applied for something as a writer and I got a job. And again, I like, I just loved it. In fact, one of the highlights, or I don't know if it's a low light, was like I used to you know, I was I was like their face for Sydney Water, so I did things like took Simon Townsend's Wonder World on a tour of North Head sewage treatment plant on <laughs> Tamara and stuff like that. I don't have any of that anymore. I'd love to find stuff oh, from that funny. era. Um, and yeah, and and so I worked in public affairs for quite a long time. Like I worked in roles for Energy Australia as a public affairs director, and then I also um, worked for a minister in 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 what was um, the New South Wales government. And yeah, I worked for a whole variety of places doing PR and public affairs. Maybe it's not such a leap because it kind of feels like that's all about storytelling, isn't it? Yeah, it really and is. Yeah. 
And I think one of the things that I've always been really grateful for was when you work in TV, you have to learn to be really fast. Mm. Like you get given an assignment at the beginning of the day and you actually have to put that to bed at the end of the day. So I think that that created um, a decisiveness for me in my work um, that, um, yeah, this ability to very quickly synthesise what you're being told and to turn it into something. And I think that that is something that's held me in good stead for what I do now. Yeah, in an in a entertaining way, in a, in a kind of engaging way, which is yeah. the storytelling, which is getting the facts out there, but doing it in a way such as the news, et cetera, and journalism, where it's actually you want to captivate the audience. Yeah, you're telling, a, you're telling a story. And I think it's funny, like one of my pet hates, one of the things I feel really passionate about is I believe that the way we're taught to write at school is actually something you have to unlearn when you leave school. Mm. Um, it's a very kind of cold, academic, you know, whilst thou, you know, all this sort of yeah, stuff, yeah. like language that we don't use to speak in. No. And that's one of the reasons why learning to write for television, you learn to write in the spoken word. Yeah. So it translates very well to storytelling. Um, yeah, so it was a great, a great kind of um, set of skills that have, I feel like still serve me well in all the things I do today. And... One thing that kind of struck me when I first met you and still today is that how much effort and energy you put into uh, your work. And, you know, it was often I'd get an email from you from three in the morning. <laughs> going, I try not to do that anymore. Oh, do you don't? <laughs> I program but, the emails to go later. <laughs> oh, <laughs> do you? Oh, I'm thinking you're working all night. Um, but I, th- I think that you work in a, in a, maybe that journalism background kind of set you up for that. I know when, when certainly I've always worked... Um, I say I work twenty four seven. It's not work for me. It's I love I love what I do, and so I'm always on and always thinking and always kind of sketching and thinking of different ideas and stuff and having many conversations with people, and so it's very hard very hard to kind of you know put it into one bucket and separate it from life. And I think you'll talk about that um, later. But there is something maybe it's a generational thing that like um, you know certainly in our in our industry previously people were working you know, seven days a week on stuff. And I guess you could say it's a bad thing or you could say it's a, it's a good thing. If you love doing it, then it's a good thing. You know, like we're very fortunate to be doing what we what we love, you know, uh, yeah. for clients that really do more often than not appreciate um, our thinking and our, and our input. Yeah, what is that? What is that, like that 110% that you've, you've got or more? I mean, 150%, 200%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, I'm, kind of lucky that I'm a person who has a lot of energy and as, as we said I am going to talk about like I did talk about that at the conference yeah. that I spoke at recently because it's a double-edged sword to have that energy because what happens is um, you don't always look after it and yeah. so sometimes you know you just assume you've got got it there to draw on but if you don't look after it properly you find that the moments you really need it you're too tired yeah, to make yeah, good yeah. decisions or to be a good leader um, so it's something that yeah, I think um, like everyone has their own kind of way, and it's interesting you're talking about Vince, like the fact that you're always thinking about work and it's always in your mind. I think like for those of us who love a challenge, like it's hard to get it out of your head because you're always trying to solve it, and your brain is kind of turning it over in multiple ways all the time. And mm. it's actually sometimes when you stop your conscious mind yeah. trying to solve it that the more interesting yeah, ideas yeah, yeah. come to the fore. I agree. Um, but I think. Uh, one of the things that that I kind of have learnt <laughs> over my many years is, yeah, you need to learn to keep a bit in reserve for yourself and to 
know that that actually makes the work better. Mm. You know that, that, and I think that we did grow up in an era of events where it was kind of like um, glamorized being the person who's working all the time, and and you know that 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 is a sign of dedication. But for me now, it's more about um, like really understanding the impacts of that overworking on mental health, on your mm. own behaviour, and making sure that you know that that natural energy you're keeping in check. Yeah. You yeah. Know, so that you're not. Um, you know, you're not going to suddenly completely run out of it and hit burnout, which yeah. I, has, I do see a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the creative process is is something which is not like nine to five. And it's, I mean, often, obviously, the projects are budgeted for, um, there's time allocated for, it's kind of traffic, we call it, in. Uh, and there's a delivery date. And so it's... It's, uh, sometimes you can it manage you manage it really well and, and you, you 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 get it all done with kind of minimal amount of stress. Other times, it can be stressful if we can't crack an idea. So it's not that people aren't trying. Um, I was on Jodie Lowinger's um, uh, podcast and talking about anxiety, etc. Um, but talking about like in the old days, I used to just think that I had to go through hell <laughs> to crack an idea. That it'd be it'd be absolutely painful. You'd be like a near death experience, um, and um, and you'd kind of hit rock bottom to crack to have have that eureka moment, kind of, and have that crack that idea like one minute before midnight or just before the presentation the next morning. I and mean, we worked on many projects <laughs> over the years that we'd work all night, and um, you know, it'd be a, it'd be brilliant the next day. It, it would be, be be absolutely fucked, but we'd be it would be a brilliant idea. Um, and it's interesting that, I mean, obviously the book, Design Your Life, and this podcast was based on, for me, hitting a wall so many times, or a few times during the course of the year, and trying to work out how to be a better me to enable to do have a better life. And so that whole kind of looking after yourself is, people keep saying, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to kind of have a, you know, be better to yourself, be healthier, eat better, exercise, sleep better, meditate, all these different things. And... You know, at the time, it doesn't seem like it's not a priority, right? Because you just think, I've just got to, I'll sort that out once I worked out, you know, cr- cr- solve the problems that I've got to do for, for work and stuff like that. And it's interesting that kind of your body does tell you over time, you know, it comes back and reminds you, you get sick or you're just exhausted, um, that you need to do something about it. And if you don't, it's pretty detrimental to your long term health as well. So have you had that yourself? Where a lot, like, we're, repeat kind of like your body telling you to to slow, slow down, down. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely on occasions I, I joked actually when I did my talk recently that I spent the day of mourning as a day of sleeping <laughs> it was great <laughs> um it's interesting Vince because um like I think you know that I um really believe in meditation mm. and yoga and yep. um even when I'm not always doing meditation I believe that I've learned a lot of lessons through that practice that have helped me kind of yeah, keep my natural nature a little bit better balanced. Mm. And one of the things that um, I remember uh, hearing from actually David Lynch, who's actually a major proponent of, of transcendental meditation, is that this myth that you have to suffer to do create good creative is just a myth. Mm. And it's something that came out of kind of La Boheme and France yeah. and the kind of the kind of romanticizing of the suffering artist, but it isn't necessary, and uh, it's it's kind of a habit I think that particularly creative interest, industries fall back on. Mm. And as a leader with my team, I really try and work against that practice of behaviour of things like procrastination, or 
um, like usually the way that you solve something is to actually just start, you know, and to start working on it. And um, it's funny, Vince, because something that you taught me (laughs) is um, you have to have faith. You have to have faith that the answer will come. And Mm. it always does. And it can sometimes be extremely scary. Yeah. Um, and it's even more scary when you're not the person who's doing it right because you're trying to make yeah. all the right conditions. You're trying yeah, to go, yeah. you can do it, you can yeah, do yeah. it. <laughs> well, maybe if you just made it like that and then they look at you like, yeah. don't suggest anything, I'm in torment yeah. here. You know, so Here's a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it was something really weird that I learned and it's kind of from that, that thing of learning to let go. And in meditation there's this idea of grasping, of like trying to hold on things and grasping at things. And for me... It's interesting having that thought in everything in my life and the difference between trying to hold something and grasp Mm. it to just letting it balance on your hand and know that it won't fall. It's like a mental image that I use a lot because we're all inclined to want to control. And that thing of learning to let go a bit is a very constructive form of behaviour that we need to all learn to do more. Because when you do let go a bit, the funny thing is... um, the more space you give for others to contribute, the less the burden is on you as an individual, but also the better the work is. So for me, I'm always trying to kind of do this um, this role of mm. being more the person that's the facilitator, more the trying to create the space for everyone to bring great ideas to the table yeah. than the kind of old way it used to be in design, which is where you were there trying to kind of flog the poor creatives who were suffering into where is it? You know, that sort of attitude, which is really destructive, I believe, in a creative environment. So it's kind of a tricky thing because you're managing a team, you're managing a business, you do need to deliver great work to yeah. clients, but you need to figure out a way that really um, takes away some of that fear. I don't think the fear is helpful no, myself. No, no, no. I mean, I remember yeah, when I was actively involved in, in I mean, majority of the projects with you, um, yeah, there was that. I don't, I don't think it was control that we were thinking at the time, but it's more about getting the job done. And, and there's a lot of responsibility, of course, to uh, to run a business, but also to deliver to, to deliver to our clients and above and beyond our clients' expectation. And that was always the goal. It was like, it felt so good when they clapped. It felt so good when they were like, oh my God, how did you guys think of this? You know, that's kind of a really rewarding feedback, um, no matter they didn't need to know what went into it. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't always, we're, we're painting pretty dark, uh, dark <laughs> picture. It was always, it was always exciting. And any opportunity, you know, that comes through the door is really, um, really cool that you, you kind of, at times you never even thought about that opportunity until, you know, someone phoned up or emailed or, you know, came in. It's really interesting, isn't it, how that takes you in a different kind of direction or that opportunity kind of you you start thinking about it right there and then as soon as they start talking about what they're trying to do and and obviously as a a a leader in the business now and and, um uh the the place team got a built a brilliant place team um actually let's just talk about place because for a lot of people listening and they wouldn't even know what place means (laughs) what does it mean what does it mean um for us and for you i think one of the things that we decided a number of years ago and it's three or four years ago now when we created frost place Mm -hmm. was um in line with our kind of mission to design a better world, that an area that we could have like really major influence was in the area of cities, places, mm. you know, and property. And it's funny because some people see this area as kind of almost like um, something negative, or you know, an area that maybe um, you know isn't isn't 
in line with designing a better world. But for me, it's an area where we can have huge influence. Mm. So I look at, okay, do I want to be creating a piece of packaging or do I want to be contributing to a better city? And I know which one inspires me more. So, yeah, Frost Place, we do, like, the most remarkable briefs. Um, Anything from helping to create visions for places that don't exist yet to branding uh, really major projects. Um, And we work all over Australia and even internationally as well. And I think we've carved out a really brilliant market niche of being very thoughtful, caring, uh, strategic thinkers that want to use creativity to deliver the right sorts of places for what we need today. Mm. And the thing is that within that industry of place and development and all those sorts of things, you often have people who um, are really wanting to do the right thing. They're mm. wanting to do better things for the environment. Yeah. They're wanting to kind of uh, address really important social issues like affordability of housing and those sorts of things. Um, and what we do is we partner with them and use creativity to help, you know, magnify and amplify the sort of influence for good, I think. Mm. So, yeah, that's what we're about. And we do that across very diverse types of briefs and very diverse types of um, opportunities and clients. And it's interesting, Vince, going back to that word opportunity because I feel like uh, my whole life has been about saying yes to the right opportunity. Mm. Like things have come across my path, like how I ended up in design was I was a client of what was Emery Vincent's and, the, you know, um, the amazing leader of Emery Vincent at the time, Penny Bowering, said, oh, if ever you wanted to work at Emery Vincent, I could. And then one day I said, are you serious about that? And she said, yes. And before I knew it, I was here. I haven't, you know, I want to stay here now because I love it because we are in the opportunities business. And I think... One of the things that I have really learned is um, everything is an opportunity and the opportunity is as good as how you make it, the effort that you put in and the way that you look at it. And for us, because we're so driven by great ideas, we're always trying to look at every opportunity through a fresh lens. Mm. We're trying to go, okay, like somebody else has done that that way, so how can we do that this way? And I think that that's why we have managed to attract such a great client base because people love originality and they love people who are really committed and they love people who you know really are taking seriously how precious every opportunity is and wanting to extract its full value yeah i totally agree and it's really cool to see how the markets changed too in the last 20 years um from what felt like it was just getting the job done in terms of you know probably developers wanting to kind of sell a whole bunch of units or trying to get as much return as possible. And, and over the last few years, much more focus on wanting to do the right thing. In fact, pushing us and demanding that, that the, they need or want to do the right thing for, their, for the world and for, for their customers. Pretty big shift, wasn't it? Yeah, look, I think, I think um, every, everyone is wanting to do something meaningful with their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're in an era uh, of purpose, like it's kind yeah. of on everyone's lips. And I think that purpose and doing good things and business can exist side by side. They're not always competing. No. Uh, and a lot of the people that we work with are really, yeah, very genuinely trying to do the right thing and really wanting different brains at the table to reimagine how you might solve, you know, uh, opportunities that have been solved, you know, in the same way for many, many years. So it's it's a very exciting time, I think, to work in places. Yeah. And I guess COVID has been a massive circuit breaker as well in how we think about our places. 
um, you know, being stuck in a very limited, uh, you know, area uh, and not being able to move and Australia being closed off from the rest of the world and all these things, it does make you focus more on what do we expect out of our places and mm-hmm. how does that correspond to what we expect out of our lives um, and made us, I think, more aware, just more aware of how our behaviour has a direct impact on the lives we live on and, and, and on the, at the health of the places that we occupy. So, yeah, it's an amazing time coming out of that era to start getting serious about how we can do better yeah. in a whole range of ways. I totally agree. And, and the, a recent project that was just launched um, last month was the Key Quarter project at um, Circular Key with AMP Capital. That started about 12 years ago, I think it was, or 10 years yeah, ago? Yeah, 2012, 10 years ago. Yeah, amazing project. And that was... Jeff Pierce and um, and the team were approached us about pitching on that project, uh, and then, you know it's incredible how I, I just love that when you when when you when you're involved in a project from not quite understanding what it was going to be, and then walking around it like ten years later, it's a long time later, but to walk around that place um, and to see it realized at such an incredible level and see people engaging with it across retail, residential, commercial, etc pretty incredible isn't it like yeah. how was it for you that project well yeah 10 years and a lot has happened over that time and I think at the beginning um like this predates you know 3xn winning the design competition yeah, to design right. that um to design that amazing architecture um so yeah it's kind of like you're working with you know in that case AMP Capital to help them explain this is what we're trying to do here uh, even to the point where the kind of strategy work that we did in the very early days like went into the design competition that mm. then led to the architecture, not taking credit at all for that. But a lot of the ideas that we um, put into that project are still a really major part of it today. So one of the things that we did for that is to talk about that being a transformation done through the spirit of generosity. And why I think this is so important is when you think about places Places are fundamentally not about structures. They're about experiences. Mm. And experiences are about feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it's very easy to to forget that, to go, how do we want people to actually feel when they're in a place? What's the sentiment? What's the emotion? What's the sensory uh, experience they're going to have? You know, it's very easy to think about, well, what are the structures? Because that's kind of very tangible, whereas some of these other things are quite intangible, which is where the work that we do really comes into play because that whole idea that that was about transformation through generosity created a spirit of giving back to Mm. Sydney as a city. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's you know, really central to Key Quarter's success is that it isn't a development that's closed its back on the city the way that some office developments are, where they're very excluding. Um, there's a lot of dimensions to that project that are actually for Sydney siders, you know, the wonderful Key Quarter mm-hmm. lanes development where it's new retail, but even up into the commercial tower itself, like the podium is all public, you know, you can get up and into it and interact with that incredible yeah. piece of architecture. So the whole philosophical stance behind what that project could be, I'd love to think that we played some role in uh, influencing how that was conceived as a place. Absolutely. And, and, and you, you know, or one knows when you're in a, sp- in a place, uh, whether it's a physical place or, you know, whatever it might be, you know when something feels bad, when something feels good. Like when you walk into a place, some places you go, oh, my God, this is amazing. You can't, can't quite work out why. But the energy that you're getting from the place is um, 
whether it's deliberately designed to give it. Um, obviously, in this case, with Key Quarter, it is deliberately designed to create amongst nature and the man-made uh, physical space and structure, materials, light, etc., all play a massive part, don't they, mm. in and how you feel? It's so interesting, Vince, that you come back to that word energy because I do believe, I, like I have a very sensitive radar to the energy of place. Like I can quite easily walk into a place and go, oh, this just feels bad or mm. this just feels good. Maybe it's from that childhood of growing up yeah. in a place that was designed so well, yep. you know, that I know that I, I can feel it energetically. And I think that that's something that um, a lot of First Nations people like um, also, like I'm not saying, you know, that I have any of the sort of levels of sensitivities that they do, but that's seen as a tangible thing in other cultures, whereas we tend to kind of go, oh, that's all mumbo-jumbo, hippy-trippy stuff, but I don't think mm. it is. I think that the way that you feel in a place, the energy you feel in a place is something that needs to be designed, mm. um, and I feel that it's very tangible for us. I think that we um, are beings that can kind of uh, emotionally respond to an energy in a place very clearly. So, yes, it is important to be thinking about those things and not just thinking, um, you know, oh, we're just here to create, you know, uh, to create a structure. It's how is it going to be used and how does it respond to the needs of people that, that also needs to be very important. And how, yeah, ultimately having a better better experience, a better life or healthier, healthier experience as well. What's been your proudest moment so far? It's so funny. Somebody asked this question at the conference last week and he said, oh, it's the, the moment to come. My proudest moment hasn't okay. happened yet. Um, I think there have been many proud moments for me because we've done some amazing things over the years. Like, particularly there was a time there um, with all the work that we did in the cultural space, like creating the brand for the Sydney Opera House, oh, yeah. creating the brand for Sydney Living Museums, uh, the Maritime Museum. like State Library. State Library. All that work often you do really um, like enjoy a lot. Uh, because I guess it's very culturally aligned to mm. what we are as creatives. Yeah. But there have been so many great projects like over the years, like more recently, like rebranding John Holland, which was a fantastic oh, project. Yeah. That was awesome. And it was so great because it was a true, um, a true project where the work that we did wasn't just about their identity. It actually led to cultural transformation mm. within that organisation and helped them be more who they really were. And that's how in my work as a brand strategist, I always see my work to be a really great mirror. It's to reflect back to someone who they are, but to do that in a way that's more precise. And that people will literally say this sometimes, oh, like you've just shown us who we are, but it was like the mirror was all smudgy Mm. and now the mirror is clear. So yeah, it's an incredible kind of um, honour, I think, to often work with organisations and help them with that work and help them you know, have that clarity. And as I said, for me, sometimes that just comes back to that training, that incredible training I had early in my life of being able to actually structure ideas with order and create a narrative that makes sense to people so that then they can, you know, run with it and mm. amplify it within their own organisations. Yeah, I think it's that it's that roadmap, isn't it? It's the kind of the, the script for the brand. Like, because often... I mean, often we go into a situation and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I find it interesting how so many organizations that we've worked with over the years, the larger ones that you think that have all this shit worked out, <laughs> often are the ones that don't. And it's a really cool opportunity to walk in and actually and know that you're actually helping them with business advice, not just what people consider as creative advice. Because it's not, 
I think people wrongly see branding as purely a creative exercise. It, it is highly strategic and highly about business and, and the culture of that organization. And helping that organization to be the best they can be, it's like really is about creating an incredible uh, a roadmap and, and the guide, a simple guide to, to enact that. Because it's, you don't want to create anything complex because they already are complex things, businesses. In fact, I'm amazed a lot of businesses even succeed as a business. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's, but it's really cool. I, do you find that rewarding when you go into an organization that can, if maybe it's blatantly obvious for you what to do, but for them, it's just like, we just don't know? Well, I think it starts with um, listening. So, so many of the projects we do um, involve a lot of consultation. Um, and uh, it's almost like being a detective uh, because you're going out into organizations, you're often interviewing a large number of people, conducting workshops. Um, for me, I really am a very big believer in primary research, like actually interviewing people, meeting people mm. who are actually being affected yeah, by what yeah. you do rather than secondary research or not even consulting. It's not even just not two people, but sometimes 20 plus people. Oh, yeah, very large. I've really just cool. done a number of projects that are like 80 to 100 people wow. that we've met with across the course of interviewing workshops. And so, yeah, but the problem is... Um, you end up with a lot of data, you end up with a lot of answers. But what starts to emerge is a pattern and you start seeing patterns in that information and you start kind of uh, connecting the dots, if you like, and then our job is to take that pattern that you're seeing and, and turn it into something that uh, can be easily communicated and make sense to people. And I think the wonderful thing about a lot of those projects where we are working in that capacity of providing advice on business strategy is it's so empowering when you do talk to a lot of people across an organisation for them to be engaged in the process of developing that mm. strategy and feel like they've been listened to. That's what supercharges yeah, yeah, the strategy yeah. because you're not making it up. You are just actually tapping into that rich vein that yeah. often already exists, but no one's mined deeply enough before to find it. And then and then it kind of just starts flowing from there. And so, yeah, it is, it's very rewarding and sometimes very stressful, like you said, Vince, with the creative stuff. Like, I think that that's something that I really believe is um, strategy is a creative process. Yeah. It's not just a kind of A to Z research process. And sometimes I see um, strategists that come from like a market research background or a very much research background and they get often drowned, they often drown in the, in the data, like they drown in the insights. They mm. can't, they can't, well, the information, they can't actually synthesise that into true insights yeah. to then turn that into a strategic solution. And so that's the work that like, I actually really enjoy. But it is also that thing of so many possibilities coming into one uh, and how you actually solve that. And what you, and what you decide on going with too, because that's quite a hard, unless it's, bla is it blatantly obvious every time? Usually... It's not blatantly obvious, but usually you start getting a hunch. And this is where I believe you need to back your conscious and your subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. Like you need to do the work. Like I love um, Seth Godin, who's obviously a yeah. uh, major writer on marketing. And he talks about um, emotional effort. And I think that that was what you were talking about before, Vince, in solving something and really wanting to work hard at it. Like you don't get good things out of no effort. No. Um, and sometimes you do kind of have the lightning bolt moment. But I always believe, I often go into projects and feel like I know the answer very early and I'll write it down and I'll set it aside. And then when I've gone through the whole process, I'll look at that and go, 
actually, that was just the most superficial answer. It was kind of like what was already on the table. Mm. And now I know so much more. I know that lightning bolt I had early on was actually not not adequately informed to be the right solution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Those stakeholder workshops often, I remember um, the clients would put forward, you know, 10 people, whoever they, whoever they want us to talk to to get an overview. But they deliberately avoid the difficult people. <laughs> but I think that we started to kind of engage with the people that had, you know, opposing views. And actually, I remember seeing that time and time again, and you, you mastered this beautifully with them, that they were the ones that then became, because they were heard, and their voice was heard, and their ideas, and even if they were against certain thoughts previously, they, not that we you persuaded them to come on the journey, but you actually elevated their voice and didn't dismiss it. And I think that was really powerful because that meant that everybody did have equal say. And there was, you know, that balance which was uh, there, which is really cool. Well, mavericks are really important, you know, because we can't always just be in the middle. I mean, IDEO talk about if you want to find out about a new way to innovate, innovate around cleaning teeth, you talk to the people who obsessively clean their teeth every hour of the day and floss and you talk to the people who have no teeth. You don't talk to the people in the middle who just clean their teeth normally every day because you don't find out anything new. I had so onions for lunch, so I apologise <laughs> as well. So, um, <laughs> so it's that thing of like not presuming that you should exclude voices. And I think this is one of the things that we all know is that diversity of thought actually creates better ideas than always staying in the middle. And um, one thing that I was taught is it's much easier to take a really out there idea and make it more achievable mm. than to take a really average idea and make it unique. Mm. So excluding those people that are often seen as, yeah, the painful radicals or whatever in an organisation from the conversation, to me is um, excluding that diversity of thought that's often going to help you um, expand and go into different pathways of ideas. So it is very important to respect those people in the conversation. Yeah. Like I actually, I actually like or have always considered myself a little bit of a maverick, you know, and, and I find it really hard to conform. I think it's because I went to a private girls' school and it was so like you're meant to obey the rules and I, it went against my grain so deeply that mm. I, like I, I'm a bit of a non-conformist. So I relate to those people who... You know, not not who are trying to be destructive in the process, but who see things that are too normal and average. They want to do better. Like for me, those people can be really, really helpful. Well, that that's <laughs> maybe that's why we work so well together. Uh, you just summed it up. But I mean, it's interesting because you you are a extrovert. I would say, right? Um, I was much more of an introvert in the past. And, there's, and a lot of creative people in, this, in the business and design are, are introverts. They're just naturally that way. And, and no matter how hard we try to make them more confident and more expressing, help them kind of express their ideas, they naturally feel like their ideas don't need explanation. Do you find that? I mean, I, I've, I find that over the years. Um, or you... I think the difference is with, with, with strategy and the role that you play in that, you really help pull that out and tell the story in a very compelling and logical and, you know, um, engaging way. And that that's kind of, it, it sounds like a simple thing and it sounds like, yeah, great, cool. Um, <laughs> that worked. <laughs> but it, it's not as simple as that because I can see so many times people present ideas, incredible ideas, that, that the way they presented those ideas just don't 
capture the audience. They don't. They maybe they haven't kind of unpacked it in a way that's understandable for the audience, and that's that's a real skill that you have. Yeah, I think sometimes people presume that the design will speak for itself, but being able to explain your idea is very important. In fact, mm. it was interesting hearing Christo talk about this last week, and he was saying like actually, um, ideas start with words, so you need to be able to explain the words behind mm. your idea, mm. you know, it's pretty fundamental. It's interesting that thing you're saying, though, about extrovert, introvert, because I don't believe that you're one or the other. I think that we're all turning it up and turning it down. And in some moments you feel quite confident and quite extroverted. And in other moments you can feel quite, like, lacking in confidence and introverted. So, you know, it's kind of like for everyone, it it's context-related to me. It's not a natural – like. Mm. Yes, I I have quite a... That's good coming from an extrovert. <laughs> no, but there's times <laughs> when I have to be really quiet. Like, that's why I need things like meditation. And people would be surprised that um, in the moments they see me publicly, I probably seem that way, but I'm balancing that out Yeah. outside of people. But I, I think yeah. that, I mean, I'm, I remember in, in the old days, you know, being very... I was petrified of talking. <laughs> I was petrified of presenting. I was petrified of being in a you know, presenting in a, in a client workshop or on stage. I mean, it was like, I couldn't turn that up and down. <laughs> I'd had a few vodkas. We did pretty well, Vince. Oh, but <laughs> I, I was like, now I feel much more confident. It's just time, you know, like you yeah. get determined to make it happen, but it was really hard. Um, you spoke recently at the No BS conference in Melbourne, as I mentioned before, last week, in fact, and you talked about managing energy, not your time. Can you just un unpack that so, so the audience can hear yeah. this again? So this is kind of, and, and you're talking about as you get older, you kind of start to understand yourself better. So personally, I find my energy goes up and down all day. Like I'm not just one note. Um, so there are moments when I have a lot of energy and there are moments when I have no energy. And I think that what was very interesting was that when we all went into lockdown, we changed that perception that your day was nine to five and you went to work. And we started to understand that work is something that you do and it can be done in different types of places or different times of the day. I guess my core theory is you need to align the right energy to the right task mm. and that that's about knowing yourself. And, you know, you're saying the 3am emails. Like I get my – I get a huge rush of energy late at night. Mm. Like I am – uh, I don't know why that is. It's been since childhood, like yeah, yeah. doing, you know, exams. I would like always be, you know, a crammer the night before. Like that's just when I get my, get on a roll. Yeah. Whereas kind of like two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm often hopeless, you know. So for me, oh, it's shit, about, it, <laughs> it probably is. For me, <laughs> for me, it's about actually having that knowledge of myself and knowing when I, when like my own patterns in a day and how to manage it. And also knowing that um, there are things you can do in terms of how you're helping to restore your energy mm. across the course of the day. Because we're not designed to be all, you know, 100%, you know, for, for eight hours of working. Like our bodies physiologically can't actually do that. Like we actually need moments of recovery. Like mm -hmm. you need to every kind of 80 to 120 minutes, you need a little bit of downtime. And it's interesting because I think pre-COVID, like that was maybe travel time or the moment you took to go and get a coffee or whatever. And then we went into this world of like Zoom hell. where <laughs> It's just yeah. like you couldn't even go to the toilet. But I think coming out of COVID, a lot of us are going, well, what are the patterns of behaviour that I want to keep? And I think
think one of the constructive patterns of behaviour that I learnt was you're just taking a few moments sometimes. You'd put the washing on or, you know, you'd go and play with the dog or you'd actually talk to your son, you know, whatever. Um, understanding that that's not a luxury. You actually need those moments to mm. let your body recover, to eat, you know, like... Um, one of the things that's interesting, I find, and, uh, you know, I'm a vegan, so yep. I'm quite passionate about diet and how diet affects yeah. your body. And your mood. And all those things. And, like, why do we eat, like, breakfast, lunch, dinner? It's about structuring our day to mm. the era of industrialization where you had to eat before you went to the factory. You know, the, the horn would go off in the middle of the day and you're allowed a lunch break, and then when you got home, you'd eat. Like, that's a very kind of particular way of thinking about how you should structure how you're putting fuel into your body to fuel the energy that you have across the course of the day so for me I don't eat that way I don't eat a big breakfast a big lunch a big dinner like I kind of snack a lot throughout the day and that keeps me keeps my metabolism really stable it keeps my energy levels my blood sugar more stable Um, and and I don't I don't like that feeling of when you've had a huge meal and you feel uncomfortably full Mm. like I just don't like that feeling in my body Um, so yeah there's lots of ways to kind of adjust how you um, how you know your own sources of energy and that's the key thing for me is it's very very personal yeah Uh, it's down to your own metabolism it's down to your own personality it's down to your own energy reserves Um, but one other thing I talked about and I think I mentioned this earlier is For me, I have to really work at the idea of keeping energy in my tank, like being a high energy person, uh, being a night owl, all these sorts of things, maybe not getting enough sleep. Like I I actually now believe it's irresponsible to not have an energy reserve always kept to the side, Mm -hmm. like the reserve tank in a a car. Because you never know when that moment's going to come where your team might really need you to help solve a brief or Mm -hmm. there might be a crisis in your life or your family needs you, and if you're burnt out and you've wasted that energy, often on really trivial things like staying up at night, doing online shopping or whatever it is, yeah. um, you're not you're not kind of making sure that you've kept some energy in reserve, which is what we all need to, to think about doing. And um, that leads to better leadership when you're not exhausted, when you have kind of understood that you need some, you know, you need some petrol left in the tank um, and or hopefully electricity left in your electric car. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to start kind of going, uh, yes, there was a time when it was kind of championed that you should be exhausted every day, but I don't believe in that now. No. I think that you should actually be fresh and that the fresher you are, the better you can do in your job. Yeah, I mean, people people used to always say to me, oh, you need to put, look after yourself first, which sounded very selfish at the time and very self-centered kind of um, approach to life. I've realized now that, uh, just through trial and error, like trying different diets, trying, I haven't drank alcohol for 10 years. Um, I'm now don't have any gluten in my diet. Um, what do I do? I train four times a week. I do strength training four times a week. I feel, I feel the best I've ever felt. I feel like better than I felt 20 years ago, to be honest, because um, I guess there's a certain, I mean, I'm now 58 and, you know, it sounds really old. Um, but age, age is kind of nothing, but I mean, age can be, you know, can kind of, um, work against you. But I feel like, I feel like, I guess in a way being lucky to kind of think about trying different things and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't work and know with the aim of wanting to feel better, you know, wanting to feel 
happier, wanting to feel more content, wanting to feel, you know, have ideas come more frequently or easier, or having better relationships or better communication or whatever, you know, better family life, etc. Like all those things, they do take, they do take um, a focus. And I think that in the past, I think we focused heavily on just getting stuff done um, to the detriment of our health. And, and now there's been a massive readjustment, a refocus on, uh, on, on putting ourselves first in a non-selfish way. It's vital that we do uh, because we can only, we're no good to anybody if we don't. And um, I don't know, I, I, I defi- have you found that through trial and error yourself by doing different things and trying things? You've been a vegan for a long time. That obviously works for you. Um, what, other, what other things have you tried? I mean, meditation, of course. Yeah, um, meditation, yoga, veganism. Like, to me, that's all together because um, without, again, getting too hippy-trippy, like, I believe that as, as people, we are a combination <coughs> a combination of being a physical and a spiritual mm. and an intellectual being. Yep. Like, those things aren't separate. They don't begin and end at any one point. So you have to look after yourself physically you know, you have to be mentally engaged and, you know, like all those things. And you have to you have to be okay spiritually. And that doesn't mean that you have to kind of, um, you know, suddenly convert to some formal form of religion. I think that that's a mistake. Like spirituality isn't just about religion. Uh, spirituality is about feeling like you're, that you're recognising that being that's inside yourself, that's the inherent you you are i know that Mm. sounds weird but um so yeah like there's a lot out there that can help you Mm. to um you know come to terms with all Mm. those dimensions of yourself um and you can't just focus on one and exclude the other um you have to be actually trying to grapple with all of it you know and you know, like, it's so true. It's like you say, okay, you're almost 58. Like, I'm not far behind you, although you always say I'm older <laughs> than you. Um, uh, I think as you, as you age, you know, wisdom is a real thing. You mm. do become more um, conscious and, and more reconciled with who you are. Um, and it's funny because, like, you always see these talks about, you know, are you doing the thing you love and, um, you know, what's your purpose and all that sort of stuff. But for me... Um, if you love what you do, you are doing the thing that you love. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and you can, it's, it's often an attitude. Um, and you do, ha- you do become kinder to yourself and you go, oh, you know, I often say stupid things or I in it unintentionally might be you yeah. know, the bull in the china shop because I am very excited sometimes about, about stuff. Um, but, yeah, you, you explore things. And, and, and I, I, of, I also want to say, like, for me, I, I, like I, um, I get my energy from like doing the things that I'm really interested in and love. So I mm. love live music. Yeah. Like that was a major problem for me during COVID because I get a lot of yeah. excitement and literally that feeling of being, you know, in a crowd, seeing amazing live music. I think it's very hard to replicate how good that is. Yeah. Um, like I saw Tavi Impala a week or so ago. I was, I think, the oldest person there. <laughs> like, um, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm, it's not going to stop me going. And the way that they had created, like, a production that was, like, it was the music, but it was the light show and it was the ambience and it was the, it was the complete thing. It was, it was outstanding. And Amazing. I said to my friend who I was there with, like, this is like a religious spirit experience because yeah, yeah. it was so 
satisfying on every level of w- what they created. So, so thank you to Tame Impala because it was it was awesome. That was a, <laughs> an amazing moment. And yeah. and your son Dash, um, who's what nineteen now? Eighteen. Yes. Eighteen. Just um, he started his own uh, music publishing business. Record label. Record yeah. label. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So it's obviously in the blood. Um, and it's exciting, isn't it, seeing your kids grow up? Like, that's such a such an amazing... You don't think they ever would <laughs> at the time. I mean, they feel like they're kids for ages, don't they? Um, but how, how's it... You know, you've obviously been doing your profession and being a single mum for quite a long time as well. And you're a huge advocate for championing women in the design industry. Um, how do you use your influence for good? So I think sometimes... In fact, I heard... Julia Gillard say this, like people have got to be able to see it to believe that they can be it. Mm-hmm. So just being there and, you know, like uh, having having a profile in the industry for me is important. Yeah, um, That's one of the reasons why, like people often say to me, oh, you do a lot of speaking at events and things like that. And I'm always really happy to give my time over to talking within the industry because other women just need to see women who are succeeding. Like, it is really unfortunate that women are re- underrepresented in the design industry. So it's, yeah, it's important to be there and to show that it is that it is possible, you know. Um, and, and, and I don't mean that in that, you know, it's, it's sort of impossible, but I think that uh, it's just good for people to see strong women who are succeeding, hopefully on their own terms, and to go, I can do that my own way and it will turn out in a way that, works for me you know and uh so yeah i i love um contributing to women in 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 design i mentor someone which is fantastic so i regularly talk to her and help her grow her business and you know i i, I take a real joy out of it for me it's an honor mm-hmm. to be able to show show that um that level of hopefully success and 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 to be there to answer questions and to just model the fact that you know women have a really important role to play in in any in any industry. Absolutely, uh, I guess I because I, I I'm one of four kids and it was two boys and two girls. I grew up with sisters, so for me, it, I, I never understood that inequality thing. Like, I, I, for me, like we're all equal. You know, in fact, our business I think is seventy percent um, women. We're taking over the business. <laughs> yeah, good, good. I love that. Um, but also really exciting news. It's been announced by AGDA, Australian Graphic Design Association, New South Wales, as their new chairperson. Yeah. That is super cool, Kat. It's very exciting. And it is actually the first time that a woman's been in that role in New South Wales. So I think, you know, for me, again, it's a real honour. And uh, something I'm really excited about, um, I hope they don't find my energy too much for them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because I think that... Uh, Again, COVID, for a lot of these sorts of professional organisations, it was hard to to bring the industry together mm. and to come together and, um, you know, advocate for the things that matter within our industry. And so, yeah, we've got uh, a really amazing council that are coming on board for 2023 and a really strong agenda to shift from kind of just sort of teaching the craft of design or talking about the craft mm. of design to actually shifting to an advocacy role and um, mm. looking at issues that are really emerging and matter within yeah, our industry. Doing good. And, do, and yeah, and, and using our profile to do good and to yeah. shine a light on things that perhaps uh, haven't been um, the focus of AGDA in the past. And that's not to say that we won't still do all of the really important work to keep the community networking and keep it together and having a sense of shared spirit. 
But it's about also thinking about, well, important issues like reconciliation and what's our role as an industry yeah. in that sort of uh, area, uh, particularly as, you know, we're coming up to a referendum on, uh, you know, the Uluru a statement from the heart, like we need to be present in those sort of conversations as an, as an industry and understand mm. our role yeah. uh, in opening up new opportunities for First Nations people. So there's areas like that that I think that AGDA can really start to show leadership mm-hmm. within our industry. Um, and that's kind of where I know uh, it's excited to head. So, yeah, that I couldn't imagine anything better than contributing to important conversations yeah. that is on community. You definitely will help them hugely. Um, what's next for the place team? So I think one of the things that we're really keen to do is to contribute uh, more uh, in terms of helping destinations. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about can we create like a destination sort of empowerment kit that can help maybe destinations that are being affected like Lismore and places that are being affected, you mm-hmm. know, definitely during the fires and the floods and all the things that our beautiful country can sometimes, you know, throw at local communities, how yeah. could we be there for those people who often need to tell their own stories and do things like drive local tourism and things mm. like that. So that's one thing that we're thinking about is how could we take some of that expertise that we've applied to places like Broken Hill and Redfern and mm. other places to help them succeed as places. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing uh, that we just want to keep doing is to grow uh, you know, who we're working with. So hopefully doing more projects offshore as well as within Australia mm-hmm. and to just bring that passion to as many places as we can in a constructive way. Uh, and one last question um, is, have you, have you designed your life? Well, I think everyone says this, but it's still a work in <laughs> progress. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that thing, Vince, of what we were talking about before of really seizing opportunities uh, is big for me. Um, and being able to kind of recognise in the moment, you know, what that what that means um, and, you know, what some people think is luck. Like, to me, I sometimes see that that is actually um, the course that you're meant to take yeah, in life. Yeah. It's coming to you, you know, uh, if you're open to it. Um, you know, of, often amazing things happen that you couldn't have sort of put down on a roadmap. Mm, um, yeah. Certainly, there's no way that I could have, when I was much younger, mapped out the course that my life has taken. But I'm very grateful for it. I think I've had an amazing opportunity to do incredible things across the course of my life. And I'm still really excited about the life to come. And I think that this is one of the things, getting back to the fact that my mum is 90 and still a working artist. Like, I feel very passionately, like, we need to stop thinking that, you know, once you do start to get older, that suddenly you're disposable. In fact, often you have more to give. So I, uh, you know, I think it was actually Anne Rossler who said to me, you know, you look at industries like music where great conductors can work, you know, their whole life and be more and more respected as a maestro. But we often think of design as a young person's game and that you're not doing anything cool because you're not young. Um, I think you have to put a lot of effort in staying current and, and yep. you know, understanding what, what issues matter. But I think for me, yeah, I'm excited to continue to contribute and hopefully for a very long time. That's cool, Kat. You're an incredible person, incredible strategist and a, a woman and a role model um, for many people. And uh, thank you for everything. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Vincent. Thank you for all the wonderful things that we've been able to do over the many years we've worked together. It's been an amazing journey. Oh, sweet. It's not finished, by the way, guys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the podcast has. Thank you, Kat. Thanks, Vince.
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Design Your Life. We'll be taking a break until the end of February 2023. And thank you so much for the support you've given us during 2022. And I hope the conversations and the people we have on the podcast this year have inspired you to live better. We're wishing you all a great festive season. From me, Vince Frost, my entire team at Frost Collective. A special thanks to my team who make this podcast happen. My producer, Luca Frost, writer, Sarah Clark, designer, Taryn Langman, and editor, Louis Frost. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.